to the fathers in our crowd to hear their children uh, talk about the Lord in that way and what they learned last week. Uh, That's pretty good stuff. Just piggybacking on what Kevin said, we're voting not on a person next week, but just on the creation of a position. Uh, So as you gather that information, just keep that in mind. Uh, Those of you dads that got gifts uh, today, I don't know if you got a tie or not, but my tie is better than your tie. And I say that because my tie was not bought with love. It was made with love when my daughters made me this tie. And so I'm wearing it for you today. So as I preach, and you think, man, that is a good-looking tie. She might take some orders, a um, little summer, summer fundraising project over there. So uh, t- talk to her after the service. Um, before I get started with our sermon, one thing I want to do, we've prayed a couple of times this morning. I can't ever do too much of that. I'd like for us just to pause for a moment and spend some time in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in Charleston, South Carolina, those uh, members and people who are part of Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. Obviously, on Wednesday, that church was struck with just a heinous tragedy uh, as a gunman came in and killed nine uh, of its members. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer for that church and, uh, yeah, and just take our hearts to him. Father, we love you. We come to you grieving for people that we don't know. Uh, Nine people that we've never met, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are people who worship Jesus and love Jesus, and so we stand with them. Lord, we, uh, we condemn together those heinous acts, and Uh, We just lift a church up to you that needs healing grace, that needs your mercy in this time, that needs an overwhelming sense of your presence and your care and your safety, God. So, Lord, just be with that church, be with its leadership as uh, they think about how to continue to worship and be on mission in the city of Charleston, Lord. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the tremendous response that they've had in just these few days the forgiveness that they've extended to uh, the man who came in and killed their own. Lord, we recognize that that is not of flesh and blood. That is of the Spirit. And so, God, we ask for just a, an outpouring of your Spirit uh, and that somehow through this evil uh, you will do great good in that city um, and that it could be the sparks of revival throughout our whole country. Um, Lord, we recognize you as sovereign, as in control, as holy, good, and just, and we submit all of these things to you in light of who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 14. If you're not there already, we'll be finishing the 14th chapter of Mark this week, so that's exciting. Um, but I'm wondering, as we get started here, do you possess a healthy distrust of yourself? And what I mean by that is, are you aware of the ways that you are able to deceive yourself and delude yourself? Are you tuned into the ways that you can lead yourself astray? Do you question yourself, your motives, your heart? Because if not, you may be in a very, very dangerous place. I've seen firsthand self-deception and pride take down a good number of men that I know and love. And these are These are not just laymen. These are are pastors and church leaders and ministry leaders. And I think their prominent positions had a way of actually feeding their tendency to deceive themselves. And I think to intensify this problem, even on a cultural level, 
the prevailing view, the predominant lie in our culture today is that mankind is basically good. You know, sure, we're capable of evil, but mankind is basically good. And if man's greatness would just be fully embraced then, and, and, and realized, then you, the individual, you could accomplish anything you set your mind to, and the world would be better for it. But mark it down. Self-esteem, self-confidence, personal pride is, in fact, sin. It's all an evidence of the corruption of of sin. John MacArthur calls it the very arrow point of sin. It's where sin starts with pride. And as much as you try and relabel it as a virtue without at some some level deceiving yourself, it is in fact that. And a deceived person, a deceived person is capable of the worst kind of sin against God, against himself, even against those he confesses to love. So let's read this passage, just a weighty, somber passage in front of us today. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 66. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. May God bless the reading of his word. Today, we are going to look at a certain believer in Jesus Christ. So this man is one of us. And not just one of us, but in many many ways, the most privileged of us. This man spent three years walking with the Lord Jesus. He emerged as the leader of the apostles. I'm, of course, talking about our friend Peter. And in looking closely at Peter, we're going to discover a very, very profound lesson in the danger of self-confidence. You remember Peter was called three years earlier. He was fishing the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus called and called he and his brother Andrew to follow him. Jesus said to Peter, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the text tells us they left everything and followed Jesus. They left everything, nets and boats and gear and crew, everything and followed Jesus. Peter's name before Jesus got a hold of him was Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. But Jesus changed his name to Peter. It's the Greek word petros, it means rock. So before there was a pro wrestler turned actor, Dwayne Johnson, who everyone calls The Rock, there was Simon Barjona, who everyone in the church since its inception has referred to as Peter. And Peter had witnessed more of the Lord's earthly ministry than just about anyone. He had seen Jesus heal lepers, feed thousands of people. He had heard him 
teach for countless numbers of hours. He had seen Jesus calm storms. He had seen Jesus walk on water. Jesus even empowered Peter to give that a try himself, and he did it for at least as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus. Peter was there when Jesus unveiled his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the glory of God. He heard the voice of God proclaim the deity of Jesus Christ. Peter was the first of the disciples to confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he was commended for it by Jesus himself. But he was also scolded by Christ for that information that Christ gave when he said that he would be crucified. Peter tried to rebuke Christ for for that. And what did Christ say to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. Several hours before the scene that I just read, Peter had prepared the Passover meal. Jesus had washed his feet. And as they moved away from the upper room, Jesus told Peter that he would deny him. Peter objected to Jesus' prophetic word, and so Jesus told Peter exactly how he would deny him. Peter vigorously and confidently asserted that he would be faithful. He said that even if he had to die with Jesus, he would not betray his Lord. Unbeknownst to Peter, his attempt to correct Jesus was in and of itself a kind of denial. His falling asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus had commanded him to watch and to pray, it also was a kind of denial. His, his, his hasty action that led him to draw a sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant was a kind of denial. And then his following Jesus at a distance as the Roman cohort and the temple police took Jesus into custody was a kind of denial. So at this point in Mark's gospel, the end of chapter 14, the rock, Peter, is starting to crumble. Mark's gospel is Peter's account of the life of Jesus. And within it, Peter is not shy about sharing his failure. And think about that for a second. How many organizations, how many movements include the failure of their leaders in their founding documents? That's what we have with Peter. The setting for this scene is found two places. Verse 66 is the briefer description of where Peter is located. It says he's below in the courtyard. This is the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. And what's he doing there? Well, he's driven there by his love for the Lord. Make no mistake. He's driven there by his desire to be loyal. He's driven there by the fact that he has made these constant protestations that he would never, ever deny Jesus. He's just trying to have some integrity So he finds himself a safe distance behind this huge entourage that is moving in the blackness between midnight and one o'clock. And after having arrested Jesus, Peter finds them and he follows them back to the house of the high priest. This house, as we look at scripture and we look at archaeology, this house would have been entered from a gate. There would have been a great wall at the street and there would be a gate and a corridor through the through the section of wall that led into the courtyard. And the courtyard would be this unroofed, uncovered area in the middle of the high priestly villa. So there would probably be at least two floors of houses and apartments on all sides with this, with this courtyard in the, in the middle. 
Peter would have to be admitted into the courtyard by a gatekeeper. There's an interesting detail about this in the 18th chapter of of John's gospel. John 18, 15, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. That other disciple is John. So John John was apparently known by the family of the high priest, and John got them to open the door to let Peter in. So John is with Peter. That's not always pointed out, but that's the reality. And John's connections get Peter into this courtyard. Verse 54 from our text last week, it gives us another detail. It reads, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And as I said to you last week, the reason Mark places verse 54 within the trial is first because it's another use of that sandwich technique that Mark so often employs in the Gospels. You have verse 54, Peter entering the courtyard, verses 66 through 72, Peter back in the courtyard, and the meat of the sandwich is the trial that Jesus is undergoing before Caiaphas. But the other reason why it's introduced in verse 54 and then revisited here is that Mark goes to an effort to place Peter's denials, place him around this fire within the frame of Jesus appearing before Caiaphas And he does that to communicate that as Jesus was being put on trial, Peter is also being put on trial. As Jesus is being questioned by the most powerful, respected Jew in Israel, the high priest himself, Peter, he's being questioned by the exact opposite of that, a lowly servant girl. And there are some other parallels and contrasts that we're going to unpack as we go through this outline together. But as you can see there in your notes, we're going to look at Peter's denial in the four stages that they're laid out in this text of Scripture. Ignorance, avoidance, defiance, and then a redeeming act of remembrance. Ignorance, avoidance, defiance, and remembrance. So first, ignorance. The servant girl in the courtyard takes a look at Peter. Luke's gospel says that she stared at him. She knows his face. She may not know his name, but she knows his face. She's trying to place him. And because of Jesus' notoriety, his close associates, they've become somewhat notorious as well. So as Jesus entered the city on Monday and he cleared the temple on Tuesday and he taught in the temple on Wednesday, as he did all of these things, he had the same group of men that were close to him. And the closest of all of them was likely Peter. He's been a fixed member of Jesus' entourage since the start of his ministry. So to picture Jesus is to picture certain people alongside, and Peter was primary in that group. Not quite a Batman and Robin kind of relationship, but close. Where there is Jesus, there is Peter. So the servant girl looks at him and says, You were also with the Nazarene Jesus. And her inclusion of Jesus' hometown is in and of itself a bit of an insult. Nazareth was, of course, nowhere special. And that northern region of Israel that is Galilee, it was 
notorious for raising up freedom fighters and insurrectionists, not very respected men. So she's just lumping Jesus in with these other zealots from the north, sort of implying that, yeah, he deserves to be arrested. He deserves whatever is going to be coming to him. Which brings us to Peter's answer in verse 68. He says to the girl, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. The commentator William Lane says that this statement of denial was actually common, and it was common in the law courts. It was actually a formal legal denial. There is a formal case going on, Jesus before the high priest. This is anything but formal. Peter around a fire with a servant girl, and he goes very official. He goes very legal in his response. Peter is speaking a formal legal denial of Jesus Christ. It was thorough. It covered both theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge, meaning this. Peter is saying, I do not personally know him, nor do I even know who you are talking about. This is an outrageous statement of ignorance. Think about it. Given the events of the week, given the Passover, given the time of night, and what's transpired leading up to all this, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people have apprehended apprehended this man Jesus, and they're bringing him back to the house of Caiaphas. It would be one thing to say that you don't know him personally, but to say that you don't know who he is, it's just an outrageous lie. That's like saying after this last week that you don't know who Stephen Curry is, right? Or you don't know who Bruce Jenner is. Bruce Jenner doesn't even know who Bruce Jenner is, so that's not a great example, but you get what I'm saying. Jesus is the most renowned, notorious name in Israel at this moment, and to plead ignorance of him is an outrageous lie. So as he left the fire and he went out into the gateway, the rooster crowed. That's the first crowing of the rooster. Jesus predicted two. That's the first. Peter didn't even hear it. He was so busy seeking the shadows, so bent on getting away from from giving a true testimony that he didn't even hear the warning that that first crowing could have given him. And that's what rebellion and sin does. It so preoccupies us with ourselves, we have no awareness of anything else. Even the warnings, especially the warnings. So the rock is crumbling He'd been so confident, so sure of himself, so solid in his allegiance to Jesus. Well, he's just denied him the first time. So that's the first stage, ignorance. Second stage is avoidance. Apparently the shadows weren't as dark as Peter thought because the servant girl, she calls him out again. In verse 69, she says, this man is one of them. One of who? One of the men who follows Jesus very closely. She may not know that there are exactly 12 disciples, so them may not be directly alluding to the 12, but she knows that he has a group of close followers. And so she says to Peter, you are one of them, right? Verse 70 simply says he denied it. In Mark's account, Peter's second denial isn't really a claim of ignorance like the first, but more just avoidance. Sort of an uneventful dismissal. He didn't go legal. He just says no. 
And in doing so, Peter is now disassociating with Jesus. The girl says, you are one of them, one of the followers of Jesus, the man from Nazareth. And Peter says, nope, don't associate me with Jesus. And you say to this, man, how can a true follower disassociate with Jesus? Isn't that apostasy? Isn't that really just proof that he doesn't know or love Jesus? How many of you have ever heard of Balthasar Hubmeyer? A little church history quiz here. Hubmeyer has been called the Simon Peter of the Anabaptists. He was around at the inception of the movement in the 16th century, probably the movement's most prominent theologian. Hubmeyer would see about 6,000 believers baptized at Nicholsburg between 1526 and 1527. But because of severe persecution, he would compromise and deny his commitment to Christ on at least two different occasions. But then on a third occasion, Hubmeyer remained true to Jesus. On March 10th, 1528, Hubmeyer was burned at the stake. And as he faced the fire, he shouted loud for the onlooking crowd to hear. He said, Oh, my gracious God, grant me grace in my great suffering. One writer said, as the flames engulfed his beard and his hair, his last words were simply, Oh, my heavenly Father, oh, my gracious God, oh, my Jesus. Witnesses said, in his death, he appeared to feel more joy than pain. And although you've never stood before you, me, we've never stood before a tribunal that threatened to, to execute us, and you've never stood before some court that threatened to put you in prison for the sake of Jesus Christ. You know of those moments, those moments when you should have confessed Christ, but instead you kept your mouth shut. You know what this is like to be Peter. You know what this is like to be Hubmeyer. Young people, you, you know how hard it can be in some circumstances to openly profess Christ. Because there are negative consequences. There's ridicule. There's maybe some mocking. So it's easier just to avoid the subject or change the subject or, or remove yourself from the group or the situation altogether. My point, you know that you have it in you to respond just like Peter. You love Christ. You're not wanting to forfeit your faith in him. You're not abandoning your trust in him. You're not disdaining him where you once loved him. You're just unwilling to confess him and admit that you're his, and we've all tasted that moment, haven't we? Peter's tasting it here. But his avoidance, it goes a step further in verses 70 and 71. The third stage of his denial is defiance. And after a little while, the text says, and I bring attention to that time detail because one of the other gospel writers tells us that this scene in the courtyard was about a two-hour scene. So these are not successive moments that are just bam, bam, bam. This is, a, this is a couple hour time frame. So after a while, the bystanders that heard these exchanges between Jesus and the servant girl, they say, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. How do they know that? How do they have known where he was from? Well, they'd been talking. They heard Peter talk, and Peter talked like someone from Galilee. Even in a small country like Israel, there were different accents and dialects, and Peter had one of those. So he's pegged. This is a Galilean. 
This is like someone from Georgia or Wisconsin, like, you know, coming in and, and, and talking. Their accent would just give them away. But then here's, here's the defiance. The text says that Peter began to invoke a curse upon himself. I like the way the ESV translate that verse, translates that verse. Other translations say that he began to curse and swear. And to, and to our ears, that sounds like he just started cussing. That's not what he did. He didn't just start cussing. He actually did something much, much worse. He invoked a curse on himself. He basically started saying, I'll be damned if I know this man. Pastor Alan Cart, he puts these words in Peter's mouth. He interprets what Peter says this way. May God Almighty damn me to hell if I am lying. If what I am saying to you is, is a lie, may God himself take my life right now. I think we can say, in light of that, I think we can say Peter is on dangerous ground. He has fallen fast. He has fallen far. He has come to a place, really, where, by this account, he has no fear of God. First Peter lies, then he tells a double lie to cover up the first lie, then he tries to prove his lies by taking God's name in vain. So it is by the grace of God that Peter is not struck down by the Lord where he stands. Theologian R.C. Sproul points out that while Jesus is claiming to be God upstairs, Peter is claiming not to know God downstairs. While Jesus is falsely being accused and convicted of blasphemy in front of the high priest, Peter is actually committing blasphemy before this servant girl. Peter would have never believed that he, that he could have done what he just did. Jesus tried to tell him, but he refused to believe. You know, if he would have just had more confidence, maybe he wouldn't have failed. Wrong. He was full of confidence. This man who was the leader of the disciples, this man who, who swore that he would die for Jesus before he would deny him, this man who had tried to defend Jesus with his sword just a short time before, there he stands, the same Peter, calling down curses upon himself and swearing before God that he knows nothing about Jesus Christ. The text actually suggests that he just kept on cursing and swearing. Hours before, he had all the confidence, all the esteem and position and purpose in the world. But remember, he failed to do what Jesus told him to do. He failed to watch and pray. That was such a crucial command. When you fail to pray, what are you doing ultimately? You're trusting in yourself. When you fail to watch, what are you doing? You're saying, ah, I've got the power. I'm pulled together enough. I can do this on my own. Peter trusted in himself, and so he willingly and intentionally denied his Savior. Which brings us to the final stage in Peter's denial. It's remembrance. Immediately, the text says. I haven't brought attention to that word immediately in a long time. It's one of Mark's favorite words. 42 times he uses it in his gospel. Immediately, the rooster crows a second time. And at that, what happened? Peter remembered something. What did he remember? He remembered the word of the Lord Jesus. 
The word of the Lord Jesus, the whole scene played out just as Jesus predicted. The prophetic words of Jesus now rang in Peter's heart and mind. Luke's gospel tells us something else happened to Peter. Luke says that at the sound of the second rooster crowing, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Think about that. They're not distant from one another in this scene. They're somehow in close proximity, whether or not Jesus is being taken from room to room or trial to trial, or there just so happens to be a terrace that Peter is able to see the Lord Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says this look was to be Peter's salvation. Because what's his response? It's the response we all have when we realize how wretched we are, how sinful we are, how dark our hearts can be, while at the same time seeing how gracious and perfect and wonderful Christ is. When those things are bumping up against each other, contrasting in the way that they are here, what happens? Well, what happened to Peter and what happens to you and I is that he broke down and he wept. Peter locked eyes with Jesus and was reminded that he had just called down a curse upon himself. And by virtue of his denying lie, Peter deserves every bit of that curse. But as he looks upon Jesus, as he looks upon Jesus, he sees that Jesus has become a curse for him. He sees that Jesus is actually standing in his place. The life being taken is the life of Jesus when it should have been the life of Peter. Just as the Philip Bliss hymn reads, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So he broke down and he wept. The truth of God, used by the Spirit of God, upon hearts who have run from God has a powerful effect. And in Peter, it is bitter weeping. He was faced with the truth, and the rock crumbled. Heard a wonderful testimony from a man who's been coming to our church for some time. He came to our Good Friday services. And he said that that whole afternoon, you remember we did those services at lunchtime, and he said that whole afternoon, it, like, it was like he'd just been hit with a two-by-four. It was just solemn, reflective. God was working in him in some way that he didn't quite understand. And then he came back to our Easter services, and he left this place, and he was driving to his house on Willow, and he had to pull over several times because of the tears in his eyes. He was weeping bitterly. He couldn't even drive home. Because the sin in his heart had come up against the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that he needed. The sin that Christ took upon himself so that this man in our church could have freedom. There's no question that Peter failed the Lord in a huge, huge way. There's no question that the fall of Peter was his own fault. It was in the, in the face of his own self-confidence. Peter thought he was strong, right? He was weak. He was weak. But there's also no question that when Peter truly repented, he was forgiven and restored. This is not a Judas situation. Peter repented, and we have a powerful scene as we move along 
in one of the other Gospels. It took place a few days later. Jesus met Peter by the Sea of Galilee. The risen Jesus met Peter by the Sea of Galilee. And while they're there, Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. And so three times, one for each denial, Peter affirms his love for the Lord. And then Jesus promises to use Peter. And this promise to feed the sheep of God, the flock of God, it's fulfilled on that day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and when he preaches the gospel and when 3,000 people are converted and baptized and added to the church. And what the Lord did for Peter, he does for many in this room. There are people sitting here who have walked away from the Lord. They've denied him by their words and their deeds, but some of you have also come back to him. And when you did, you were forgiven and you were restored, and God is using you again for his glory. So know this, folks. If you've wandered away from God, you're never out of reach. The Lord will receive you. He will forgive you. He will do more than that. He will restore you, and he will use you again for his glory. If, you, if, if you're not where you need to be, if your relationship with Jesus is in a stage of doubt or denial, Christ is looking into your eyes, and he's calling you to himself. The lead apostle, he sinned grievously, heinously in this scene. Left it here, written in to the church's founding documents. If Peter can be honest about his failure, you can be honest about yours. Respond to the look of Jesus. Let your heart be reduced to dust as Peter, the rock, has allowed his. Look to Christ and seek his restoration in the face of whatever denial you've put before him, whatever sin you've wedged between you and himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we've had to look at it together. For the wonderful truth here that reminds us how, no matter how far we fall from you, that, Lord, you are, you are there and you are ready to reach and to restore us and to make use of us. But, God, the great reminder here is that we need you desperately. That left to ourselves, left to our own power, our own confidence, our own self-esteem, we can't do it. We need your work in us. We need the strength that only you supply. So, God, we thank you for your grace and we appeal for more of it. And it's only by that grace that we are saved, and it's only by that grace that we are being saved, and that we will ultimately find eternity with you, saved forever because of the work of Christ. Thank you that he stood in our place, condemned, mocked, scorned. God, again, we praise you, and we thank you for our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.